Uh, knowledge of God, we've already done this one. Knowledge of God is dependent upon what? Yes, his revelation of himself. Uh, so we can't determine what God is like by looking at the natural world. We can't even for sure say that God exists by looking at the natural world, although we can predict that he, lives, that he exists. The evidence is pretty strong. But even if we can prove that he exists, that doesn't tell us who he is. It just tells us that he exists. Okay, so knowledge of God is dependent upon his self-revelation. The nature of the Bible is divinely revealed and therefore the foundation for human thought. Uh, and again, we're going to just assume some of these things as we go along because they would have been developed by others. Uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and scripture came by the will of God, not by the will of man. Uh, the nature of theodicy, that one, I, I might come back to that one later. That's a little bit complicated. But the book that you have electronically has a chapter in there on the judgment. And the last two-thirds of that chapter are on theodicy. I don't think I call it theodicy. It's basically bringing God into judgment. We have theologies even within the Adventist church where we think it's our job to bring God into judgment. And uh, so that chapter will point out that God is the one who reveals himself. We don't bring him into judgment. Uh, so hermeneutics, the Bible provides the basis for its appropriate hermeneutic and its own worldview within which to interpret it. We've been discussing that. Harmony with its nature as the inspired word of God. Scripture provides its own worldview and method of interpretation. So remember my professor, uh, that was discussing with me form critical method said that that the form critical method was not designed to study the kind of literature the Bible claims to be. Well, we want to use methods that are designed to study the kind of literature that the Bible claims to be. And the way we do that is to go and see what the Bible says about itself uh, in order to, to understand how to to study scripture. So the biblical concept of truth. Uh, all of these other methods had a concept of truth except for postmodernism. Well, they, they had a concept of truth. It was just that there isn't any of it. Um, so what is the biblical concept of truth? Okay, God is truth. His word is true. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay. He, uh, John 1.14, that he was full of grace and truth. Uh, yes. That there is absolute truth, okay, because God exists. Right. <laughs> okay, that's a good point. He, God exists whether I think he exists or not. Okay. Very good. So, so our concept of truth is... Uh, See, the, the other concepts of truth are, are, are concepts, they're philosophies. The Bible says truth is a person. I mean, it, it's, it's a pretty, pretty radical idea compared to all of the other philosophical systems, that truth is a person. Okay, uh, the nature of faith, <coughs> basically I'm going to take these together because they're tied together. So... <coughs> In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with, with God. 
All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and what happened? By the way, I just finished Sabbath school lesson on the Gospel of John for 2021. Turned it in on Friday, so I hope, it, I hope it's all together the way it should be. Anyway, one thing I noticed as I went through the Gospel of John is that there is a lot of discussion between theology from below and theology from above, which is basically what we've been talking about here. Theology from human principles versus theology from God's principles. Uh, for example, and this is probably the strongest one in the gospel, and that's chapter three, uh, where Nicodemus says, you know, trying to gain favor with Jesus, nobody can do these miracles that you do unless he's from God. Notice he wasn't accepting as a, as a Messiah, he was saying, unless he's from God. And what did Jesus do? You have to be born again. I mean, he really sidestepped the question, didn't he, or, or the comment. He just got straight to the point. He said, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus said, well, how can that be? And Jesus said, you must be born again. And again, he said, how can that be? You know, and then Jesus went on to, to bring out Old Testament scriptures. Right, exactly. Yeah, you're a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things. Uh, and then uh, in, in chapter 4, the woman at the well, uh, Jesus said, I would give you springs of living water. And she says, how in the world are you going to do that? You don't have a bucket. You know, theology from below. Theology is limited to, to her worldview versus God's worldview. Uh, anyway, this kind of thing, and, and then there are some passages where it's really spelled out theology from below and theology from above. So uh, hopefully you'll enjoy that when it comes. Okay, so anyway, the darkness did not comprehend it. In the context of his role in the creation of the universe and the declaration that he is the Logos, by the way, Logos, the, the word in English translated word is Logos. The Logos was the rational structure of the universe of Plato. And here John is telling us the Logos is not the rational structure of the universe. It's Jesus Christ. Okay. So, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. The entrance of your words gives light, gives understanding to the simple. Of course, another theme in the Gospel of John is Jesus as the light of the world. So, human knowledge, both the material and spiritual things, is partial and imperfect. Therefore, many are unable to harmonize their views of science with scripture. Many accept mere theories and speculations as scientific facts, and they think that God's word is to be tested by the teachings of science falsely so-called. Pilate asked the question, what is truth? And some people say it's too bad that he didn't wait for Christ to answer that question. Uh, in the dialogue there, he moved on very quickly. He was actually trying to save Christ. Uh, so it's not like he was malicious and moving on. But uh, anyway, Jesus, as we've already pointed out, had already answered the question. The one who was the way, the truth, and the life was standing right before him. God wants us to know him, the only true God, not the God whoever we think 
he is. Okay, let's take some examples. Let's take Adam and Eve. How could they have known how to relate to the tree in the center of the garden? God told them, okay? God gave them the perspective from which to know how to behave relative to that tree and how to think about that tree. Okay, what did they do instead? Okay, took their own plan. Ellen White says that she argued, uh, God of love would not destroy the creatures whom he's created, a philosophical argument. Um, and then what else? Actually, there are a number of things involved in that. But she used the scientific method, right? Serpents eaten of the tree, she's now speaking. Uh, imagine if I eat of the tree, you know, I'm that much greater than the serpent. If I eat of the tree, why well, maybe just like the serpent says, I'll become as God. So I'm gonna try the scientific experiment and that'll be the basis of my decision on how to relate to it. <clears throat> okay, the antediluvians for the flood. How did they relate to the coming of the flood? Never happened before. Okay, science tells us it can't happen. Anything else? Same argument as Eve. God of love would not destroy the creatures whom he has created. Okay, so scientific argument, philosophical argument was the basis of their decision. Kadesh Barnea, going into the Holy Land. What was the argumentation there? Ten spies came back with a report. Giants in the land, walled cities, Yes, what our eyes see, we have to believe. Uh, pardon? No one, else has succeeded at this. no one else has succeeded at this, okay. Uh, you know, men trained in war here, we've been slaves for hundreds of years, and these guys are trained in wars. There's giants in the land, there are passes that we have to pass through that are fortified with stones that can be rolled down on us. Uh, no God in his right mind would send his people into such a, a slaughter. But there were two other spies. And what did they say? Yeah, God, not only, yeah, not only can he do it in his promises, he's told us to go up. Okay, now did they disagree with the facts? Okay, they agreed with the facts but they disagreed with the course of action based upon God's word rather than upon their human reason. Christ in the wilderness. It is written, okay, very good. Now he had the other possibilities too, didn't he? He could have said, Ellen White says that Satan came down as an angel of light and said, look at you. You can't be the son of God, you know? Here, here you are in these tattered clothes out here in the wilderness uh, for all this period of time. Why don't you prove that you're the son of God by turning these stones into bread? Scientific argument, philosophical argument, a God of love would not have left his son out in the wilderness for 40 days without, without food and without companionship. Okay, but he stood on, it is written, alone. <coughs> So, 
Noah heeded the commands of God. The wise men of this world talked of science, the fixed laws of nature, declared that there could be no variation. They scorned the messenger and the messenger, messenger and the message. Uh, when they could not change him from his implicit trust in the word of God, they pointed to him as a fanatic, as a ranting old man. Uh, thus they condemned him because he would not be turned from his purpose by reasonings and theories of men. Now notice this. It was true that Noah could not what? Okay, he couldn't controvert their philosophy. That's important. We're operating on different worldviews. They don't necessarily intersect. Okay, he could not controvert their philosophies or refute the claims of science so-called, but what could he do? Okay, he could proclaim the word of God and it lost none of its what? Force and reality. There is within scripture, we'll get to this. There's power in the word of God. We say that often, but do we really understand it and mean it? And have we allowed it to impact our lives? Okay, it lost none of its force and reality. Abraham, by faith, obeyed and went out, not knowing where he was going. Um, he, to him, faith was the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Uh, let's see, he could not even explain his course of action so as to be understood by his friends. Again, two different playing fields, two different world views. <coughs> uh, spiritual things are spiritually discerned and his motives and actions were not comprehended by his idolatrous kindred. Hey, we already did that one. So, Christ said it is written. We already have done that one too. I have to go back and check that out. Anyway, humanistic faith begins with doubt. It attempts to prove the Bible worthy of our faith. Relies on the capabilities of mankind. Relies on the five senses. Looks for patterns. Forms our hypothesis, testable predictions, results in more observations. The result is a probability statement as to how new things entering the system will fit uh, what's already there. So the conclusion is in the hands of mankind, it is under human control, it is a human achievement. Faith is not a human creation, it is the gift of God. See, when I was a scholastic theologian, I thought that faith was my creation. Uh, and here I find out it's a gift of God. In order that faith might not rest on the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. And indeed I thought it rested upon wisdom. Faith is itself the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We walk by faith, not by sight. Again, I had seen it the other way around. Faith comes by what? Hearing the word of God. The word of God is powerful. The word of God can make its way into the human soul. And so faith comes by hearing the word of God. <clears throat> the spirit and the word work together. No man can create faith, the spirit operating upon 
and enlightening the human mind creates faith in God. Let's give you just a second to take that one in. Spirit working upon and enlightening creates faith in God. Again, I thought faith was my creation. I was the one that pulled all the, I'm sorry. We need more of the Holy Spirit. That's right, we need more of the Holy Spirit. Obviously the Holy Spirit in conjunction with scripture, but uh, we need to rely on, on the gift that God has given to us. Uh, so to, to attempt to use the data of reason as criteria for determining whether scripture is the word of God is to doubt that which God has already declared to be true, similar to the temptation in Christ in the wilderness to doubt that he was the son of God after it had already been declared, uh, affirmed by the word of God. Genuine faith has its foundation in the principles and provisions of scripture. So where does faith have its foundation? In scripture. Again, I thought it was in all the scientific and philosophical evidence and historical evidence that I could bring together. It's in scripture. Okay, faith in the word of God is not based upon humanistically derived knowledge. Faith itself is the foundation of knowledge. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Only in the light of revelation can nature be read aright. Faith, notice this, faith is what? See, I used to think that knowledge was the key to faith. And it's the other way around. Faith is the key to knowledge. Is faith the key for knowledge for your students in the classroom? Faith comes by hearing. The assurance, the evidence for faith is God's word. Uh, since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. I'd like you to th pick out three epistemologies in this passage. For the Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, right? Right. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Greeks' foolishness, but to those who are being called, both uh, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom. See, I used to think of power in science and history and sociology and psychology and all the human disciplines. That's where power was. I never thought, even though people talked about the power of the word of God, I didn't really think of it as you know, power that can change my life and, and, and change the way I think. Um, but indeed, the word of God is powerful. The word of God brought worlds into existence, gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and it's capable, Hebrews uh, 4, I think 11, of making its own way into the human heart. Oh, yes. Three epistemologies, the signs, the, the empirical, you, you need something you can see, you can put your hands on. Uh, so the signs, the uh, wisdom would be the philosophical systems of the Greeks. Uh, Paul had just come from Athens when he wrote this. Uh, and then the power of the word of God, scripture, right? And Ellen White has an interesting statement. Um, she says, 
when Paul was in Athens, you know, a lot, a lot of people use the experience at Athens to justify philosophical approaches to evangelism. Ellen White tells us that after Athens, Paul realized that he had not brought the gospel to them and that that was why he didn't have many converts. And that's when he wrote 1 Corinthians, that it's in the power of the word of God rather than in the power of argumentation. In my speech and my preaching were not in the persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, all these other systems we have been reviewing, faith rests in the wisdom of men, not in the power of God. Okay, I want you to notice the, the similarities between sola gratia and sola fide. By faith alone, by scripture alone. If we lose one, we're gonna lose the other. There is nothing I can do on my own to obtain righteousness. There is nothing I can do on my own to obtain special revelation. I can't go out and create special revelation. Special revelation is a gift. It's not a human creation. Righteousness is not to be manipulated by humans. Revelation is not to be manipulated by humans. Righteousness rests upon the gift of God alone. Revelation rests upon the gift of God alone. Works follow naturally from the receipt of the gifts of God's salvation. And epistemological works follow naturally from the receipt of God's word. Works never form the basis of our salvation. <clears throat> I did something wrong. Sorry about that. And humanistic epistemologies are not the foundation of our knowledge. Okay, so God has given us our minds, our feelings, our interpersonal relationships. All of these are important to who we are. And God desires us to use them to their fullest. So there's nothing we're saying here that says we shouldn't use our mind to its fullest or, or you know, our, our emotion, our interpersonal relationships, everything that makes us who we are to the fullest, including our reason and our ability to observe. These talents are given to be used in harmony with God's word rather than over against God's word. And I guess I should add there also, not only in harmony with, but based upon God's word, subject to, right? <clears throat> so, the nature of freedom. One more thing on knowledge and faith. A couple of years ago, I hiked into a cave about one kilometer into the cave and I turned out the lights and I couldn't see anything. I, could, I, I mean, it was zero. I couldn't even see my hand right in front of my face. And then they turned on the lights and I could see. I could see the beauty of the stalactites and stalagmites. And, and the water running and trickling uh, in the cave and so on and so forth. And so, without the light of the world, we are in darkness, as John said. 
but because of Christ we can see. You know, the world is there. It's because of Christ that we're able to see the world, understand the world, know how, uh, how the world operates, know how to interact with the world, and so on. Okay, the nature of freedom. Okay, the humanistic concept of freedom is autonomy, independence, free from every human institution, free from the authority of the Bible. The acquisition of truth is independent of God and his word. By the way, the 10 scribes, I mean the, the 10 spies were making their decision based on this concept of freedom, weren't they? They were free to make their decision completely independent of God's word. Possibility of truth in the Bible must be determined on a human basis rather than by divine revelation. Uh, absolute dependence from God is sin, the biblical concept. The original sin of Lucifer to ascend into heaven and to become like God. We are either slaves of sin or slaves of God. Uh, the humanistic concept, we are free to determine our own truth, to decide how to relate to Christ. The biblical concept, we are free when we come to Christ. And we shall know the truth and the truth will set us free. See, I thought I was free to determine the truth. And again, it's the other way around, that the truth will set us free. The power of God's word under the Holy Spirit. So again, you know, I put my faith in the power of science, philosophy, history, psychology, etc., versus the power of the word of God under the Holy Spirit. So conversion is not just conversion of the heart. Conversion is also conversion of the mind. So Ellen G. White on the role of the Bible in obtaining knowledge, and this you're going to have in your materials. Uh, and I won't take the time to, re to read through all of it. It, it would take a long time. And really it's something you need to read through several times and, and kind of meditate on it. It's an appendix to an article I wrote, and if you read the article, that's fine, but read Ellen White and, and really study her. Uh, like I say, we, we quote over and over again, you know, that God's ideal is as high as, as human thought and so on and so forth. But we don't put her in the entire context of the role of the Bible in, in education. And it, it should all go together we can pick statements out of Ellen White that can sound like Heir of the Enlightenment statements. But when you take her as a whole, she by no means is an Enlightenment philosopher. So Ellen White in the role of the Bible in obtaining knowledge. The Bible is God's voice speaking to us just as surely as though we could hear him with our ears. Christ pointed to the scriptures as of unquestionable authority and we should do the same. The Bible is to be presented as the word of the infinite God, as the end of all controversy and the foundation of all faith. Leave the impression upon the mind that the Bible and the Bible alone is our rule of faith and that sayings and doings of men are not to be a criterion for our doctrines and actions. The Bible and the Bible alone is to be our creed and our soul bond of unity all who bow to this holy word will be in harmony 
Man is fallible, but God's word is infallible. The Bible is an unerring guide. And now, when you go through the documents, this is headings that has many Ellen G. White quotations underneath it. Uh, so just to give you an idea. So it's the basis of religion. You know, our study of the flowers is not the basis of a religion, just like our study of the statue is not our basis of the understanding of the artist. <clears throat> it's the basis of faith. It's the test of inspiration. Ellen White herself uh, asked that her own inspiration be tested by scripture. So some people ask, doesn't Ellen White destroy biblical foundations? And no, it doesn't. She herself strongly affirms biblical foundations and I, I think I owe a lot to her for that. Okay, test for the operation of the Holy Spirit. It's the guide to life, the rule of conscience, the standard of character, the only basis of happiness, <clears throat> authority over the senses. Are the people of God so firmly established upon his word that they would not yield to the evidence of their senses? Would they in such a crisis cling to the Bible in the Bible only. <coughs> the Bible is to be made the basis of what? All education. So I would hope, and I'm sure that you're already doing this in your schools, but I would hope that, that you would go back and sit down and ask yourselves, how can we make the Bible the basis of all of our education in our specific school? And how can we make it the foundation of each of our disciplines. The Bible must be made the study and foundation for all study. Searching the scriptures alone will bring knowledge of the true God and Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, science is misleading and philosophy is foolishness. Now, she affirms the value of science and the, the value of philosophy. In fact, later uh, there will be a text where uh, she suggests a biblical philosophy. The greatest minds, if not guided by the word of God, <coughs> become bewildered in their attempt to investigate the relations of science and revelation. The creator and his works are beyond comprehension, and because these things cannot be explained by natural laws, Bible history is pronounced unreliable. In true science, there can be nothing contrary to the teachings of the Word of God, for both have the same author. So notice how she does that different than Thomas Aquinas. It's almost the same, but it, there can be no teaching that are contrary to the Word of God. <coughs> he who has a knowledge of God and His Word through personal experience has a settled faith in the divinity of the Holy Scriptures. He has proved that God's word is true, and he knows that truth can never contradict itself. He does not test the Bible by men's ideas of science. He brings these ideas to the test of the unerring standard. Whatever in so-called scientific teaching contradicts the testimony of God's word is mere human guesswork. Apart from Bible history, geology can prove nothing. 
In the annals of human history, the growth of nations, the rise and fall of empires, appears as dependent upon the will and prowess of men. But in the word of God, the curtain is drawn aside, and we behold behind, above, and through the play and counterplay of human interest and power and passion, the agents of an all-wise, merciful one, silently, patiently, looking out his own counsel of his will. Here we find the authentic counts of nations. The Bible reveals the true philosophy of history. <coughs> it's the basis of the principles of true psychology. And I'd like you to be thinking during lunch about how the Bible impacts the psychology. Now, I know that not all of you are psychologists, but most of us think we know something about psychology. So <clears throat> be thinking, and I want to have a discussion on that so we can illustrate a biblical foundation, how the Bible helps us, or is a guide to psychology. So be thinking about that during our lunch period. Notice this, it's the basis of national prosperity. I mean, we could spend a half day just on that. How is the Bible the basis of national prosperity? And what happens when you depart from the principles of the Bible? Uh, warnings about placing other things above the Word of God. The Word of God is not to be judged by a human standard. Men consider themselves wiser than the Word of God, wiser even than God. And instead of planting their feet on the immovable foundation and bringing everything to the test of God's word, they test that word by their own ideas of science and nature. Man's inventions are unreliable and dangerous. They place man where God should be. Men set up their own judgment as superior to the word of God. And the scriptures which they do teach rest upon what? So just because we're reading scripture doesn't mean we're scriptural. And almost all theologians use scripture. Not, not all of them, there are a few that are more philosophical, but most of them use scripture, but that doesn't mean they are scriptural. They place their own construct upon scripture and it rests upon their own authority instead of <clears throat> upon the authority of scripture and its divine authenticity is destroyed. Go through very quickly some of the possible relationships between faith and reason. <clears throat> you have far left human studies alone are the absolute foundation for knowledge. Uh, the second one, there's a synthesis of nature and the Bible, similar to Thomas Aquinas. Another one, okay, uh, the synthesis, all truth is God's truth, integration of nature and the Bible. Truth is truth wherever it may be found. Then uh, science, you have separation between them. Science deals with nature alone. Bible deals with religion alone. 
and they should be kept separate, both may be understood completely on their own, apart from interaction between them. And by the way, I, I've heard that also, uh, that they need, need to be separate. They're two separate worlds. And then nature and the Bible, <clears throat> with the Bible as the foundation. So indeed they go together, but they go together based upon the sole foundation of Scripture rather than uh, an integration of the two. And then, again, illustrating the difference here, uh, biblical critical studies will start with psychology, history, religion, science, sociology, literary methods, develop a natural worldview, and the Bible is encompassed within that, interpreted within that, whatever valid validity it has is tested by these worldviews as contrasted with the method which arises out of the biblical worldview. I'll just move on from that one. So, <clears throat> a little bit of humor here. These guys want to know the size of the rocks in the pile. The one on the left says they range in size from one centimeter to 20 centimeters. And the other one on the right says, no, we can determine the size of the rocks only after they have passed through a one centimeter wire mesh. Didn't I tell you? There are no rocks in that pile larger than one centimeter. But why are you discarding the rest? Because they didn't fit the standard of rock piles as defined by my wire mesh. And so we create our own wire meshes and we go and search for God. And a little bit of a nugget got through here. I'm gonna hang on to that, it's precious. Another little nugget here, another little nugget here, another little nugget here, now I'm going to gather my nuggets together and I'm going to create a golden image of my making instead of God's making. One who has fit my criteria instead of my life fitting the criteria of God. <coughs> Here's a theologian in dialogue with God. God says, I have a message for my people. I'd like to speak. The theologian who is, that God's, who is that speaking? Could it be God? If it is, he must surely recognize the insurmountable problems this would present to secular society. God again, I have a message to give to my people. Hmm, there's that voice again. Could it possibly be God? If it is, it will take several years of work to discover whether it is scientifically or historically or experientially possible for God to speak. I'll let him know if I discover a way. I have a message which must be given now. Theological silence. The theologian could not hear because he had not yet found a way to solve God's problem. It's tempting to compromise. What is the compromise between these two games? Who's going to umpire the game? What are you going to use for a ball? How are you going to propel the ball? What ball field are you going to play on? There's, there's no compromise. Now, 
the soccer player can invite the golf golfer to come and play with him or vice versa. But you can't compromise. And yet so often with Christian theology, we attempt some kind of a compromise between scripture and the world. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.